You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Okay, here we are. Uh, I am with Larry Kotwikoff. Hi, Larry. How you doing? Uh, great. Great to be with you, Glenn. This is Glenn Lowry, Brown University, uh, professor of economics here and professor of international and public affairs uh, with the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs, who sponsors the Glenn Show. And it's the Glenn Show. I'm back with Larry Kotlikoff, who's professor of economics at Boston University, who's also uh, president of Economic Security Planning Incorporated. He's an entrepreneur. He's an analyst. As a frequent guest on the Glenn Show, he's my good friend. So uh, welcome, Larry. Uh, great, great to be back, Glenn. Indeed. So uh, as I envision it, uh, we've had two conversations in the last uh, few weeks about uh, economic measurement, and I think I'd like to see them posted back to back. So my hope is that the powers that be at Blogging Heads can put this conversation up uh, in sequence after uh, the first of our two conversations. That last conversation that we had uh, was about uh, how does one deal as an economic uh, analyst with uh, the calculations necessary to figure out the best way to respond to climate change from an economic point of view, uh, building on the work of William Nordhaus, who got the Nobel Prize in economics uh, recently uh, for his work on uh, evaluating climate change policy. And your concerns, you and your colleagues, about uh, the question of the distribution of the benefits and costs from reacting to climate change across generations. Um, and you had some very interesting things to say about that. So I hope that people who are listening to this conversation will uh, also avail themselves of the wisdom that you provide in the discussion about the climate change problem. But here you are, you still have your green eye shade on uh, as a, as an expert um uh, practitioner of the art of uh, uh, and science of economic uh, measurement, uh, but we want to talk about tax policy and about the progressivity of tax policy. Uh, you had a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently, Larry, that was very provocative. Uh, let me see, I have it right here. Tax myths of Warrenomics, you call it, and you take after the uh, estimable uh, fiscal economist Emmanuel Saez and Gabrielle Zuckman, who are at Berkeley and who are advisors to Elizabeth Warren, uh, mm -hmm. and who have asserted that lower and middle class people pay roughly as much taxes as wealthy people do as a percentage of their income, that the tax system is in fact not progressive, it is flat or regressive, and you think that that's an error, uh, and that would have significant political consequences, so I'll stop my prelude and let you talk. What are you talking about, Larry? How could Elizabeth Warren be wrong about anything? <laughs> well, let me say, I'm, I'm not political. I'm not trying to go after Elizabeth Warren. I have deep respect for her. Sure. Uh, she, may be, she may be the best candidate out there, uh, but it's very hard to say there's some... Okay, uh, so I'm going to have to get you on wealth taxation after this, uh, after this conversation, but come on, let's go. Talk. Bernie Sanders might be the best. There's some other people that are great. I think uh, would do a great. Uh, anybody would do better than than Trump. I think. But notwithstanding the fact that the economy is booming and that the Republican Trump tax cut, you gave it what? What grade? You gave it a B, didn't you, or a B minus, or something like that? Not nearly yeah, as bad as the Democratic ideologue said it was. People can look up the old version of the Glenn Show where Larry Kotlikoff actually said the Republican tax cut wasn't half bad. He does think Larry Kotlikoff. That business uh, <laughs> taxation, corporate taxes were too high, and you thought that <laughs> there needed to be a leveling of the international playing field. That's what I remember you saying as far as uh, corporate no, taxes. No, that's absolutely true. I think, you know, I think the tax cut, uh, which was not, ha had some very good things, and lowering the corporate tax rate was part, the effective corporate tax rate was part of that, but it yeah. was done in a way that gave a, a big, uh, as a boondoggle to the rich, the way it was done, you could have done the same. Reduction the effective corporate tax rate without a big uh, handout, and the and the folks that seem to be getting the biggest handout were people in real estate. Surprise, surprise. Okay. So like, uh, in terms of the actual nitty gritty details of this tax reform, so that's why it didn't get an A, B, B minus. Uh, but well, let's not uh, get uh, focus too much on Trump because I think any any okay. economist who takes too political a position is giving up his right to do economics. I think uh, 
economics has got to politics has got to stop where economics begins. You can't be a, um, supporting a particular candidate or political party and still put yourself out there as an independent economist. Crazy that the guy with the Nobel Prize called Paul Krugman, who writes weekly at the New York Times, is so political and yet stands on uh, that Nobel Prize and on his uh, supposed expertise as an economist when he pontificates. Yeah. And some of uh, what Paul writes is good economics and some of it is uh, politics dressed up as economics. And uh, I've called him on it. I've, I've said that I've written articles suggesting that some of the articles you know, he should really have his PhD revoked uh, because they're so political and so off, so far afield from economics. So I've clashed with Paul on that, but um, uh, again, uh, the, the um, so so the issue uh, getting back to the topic today yeah. is is how progressive is our fiscal system? Because uh, uh, Senator Warren's chief economic advisors are claiming that our tax system is flat, that we're taxing the poor at the same rate as the rich. Now, there's a deep uh, problem with this, which they, as top uh, economists, should understand. Uh, the, the, the the gross tax rate, which is what they're looking at, they're just looking at taxes uh, as a share of income. That's not economically well-defined. Uh, what is well-defined is your net tax rate, your taxes net of the benefits the government gives you back. Explain so, why the gross uh, rate is not well-defined. Well, Glenn, suppose that um, on balance, on net, uh, uh, you, I'm the government, I'm Uncle Sam, and I take half of your income on net. Well, I can describe that as taking 80% of your income and handing you back a benefit worth 30% of your income. So on net, I'm taking 50%, or I could describe it as taking, uh, taxing you 60% and giving you back 10%. So now we've got a tax rate of 80% under one set of words, a gross tax rate of 80%. The net tax rate is still 50%. Under the second set of words, the gross tax rate is 60%. The net tax rate is still 50%. Uh, you're so you're what, saying that what matters is not just the money you pay the government, but also the money that the government pays you. Yes. We have so to it's, the, it's the difference between those two, which is what you're actually contributing to the public fisc. That's what we have to look at, the net tax rate, because the gross tax rate is a matter of language. If I could just as well say that your net tax rate represents a gross tax rate of 80 percent and a subsidy rate of 30 percent, or it's a 60 percent tax rate versus a 10% subsidy rate or a 100% tax rate and a 50% subsidy rate. It's not well-defined. It's like a language game. And it's Okay, just something- one, one small side point. It's not well-defined if what we're interested in is the flow of consumption. But, but if we're interested in the nominal uh, things, you know, we, if, if we're interested in who owns it, like, you know, that's not my money. That's not the government's money. That's my money. The the world in which the government takes 100% and then hands you back 50%, it's as if it's the government's money. The, the world in which the government never takes the 100% but only takes the 50% acknowledges in some sense that it's your money. So well, it, it doesn't matter for the ability to control consumption, but it might matter for how people feel because of these uh, investments in well, phenomenals. Well, economics is not touchy-feeling, feely, feely. It's not about uh, how people like, whether people like the government's language or this, this particular uh, use of words or this particular use of words. The fact that the government uses its words, its labels, it's saying that it's got this gross tax and this subsidy it doesn't mean that I can't just redefine, uh, use my own set of labels and say, no, the gross tax rate is higher and the subsidy rate is higher so that the net tax is uh, the same. So you're yeah. absolutely right. But what matters is what people get to consume. You could, and this problem of looking at progressivity uh, is, all, is deeply connected with the problem of looking at uh, inequality, how do we measure inequality? Uh, 
Saez and Zuckman and Thomas Piketty, the famous Frenchman who uh, uh, wrote a best-selling book about uh, uh, inequality and wealth, they're all getting hung up in language. They're all missing economics and mistaking uh, language for economics. Let me give you an example. Um, you could have uh, uh, $100,000 in wealth, or somebody could say you have $100,000 in wealth. Somebody else could say, no, you don't have $100,000 in wealth. You have uh, Social Security benefits that are going to, uh, in present value, equal $100,000. And you're in exactly the same economic position in terms of what you can consume. Let's assume you're not in there any cash constraint. Yeah. But uh, but now we've changed uh, what we call your ability to consume. One, in one case, we call it wealth. In the other case, we call it uh, Social Security benefits. So if you look at the poor today, uh, most of their wealth is tied up in the form of Social Security, uh, older poor people, Social Security claims and Medicare claims and Medicaid claims. The government grabbed uh, taxes from them, of what, what took money from them when they were young and called it taxes and said, look, we're going to hand you back money in the future. We're going to call it transfer payments and health care benefits. And this is your uh, future resources. Uh, yeah. And now the government could have, but somebody could say, well, no, the government didn't actually uh, uh, promise to pay me back uh, Social Security and health care benefits. What they did is they promised to pay me back. What they did is they didn't tax me when I was young. They borrowed money, borrowed money from me when I was young, and they promised to repay principal plus interest when I'm old. That's what my Social Security checks are. They're really principal plus interest. And the Medicare and Medicaid healthcare benefits are principal plus interest servicing the debt in an in-kind form. In other words, there's two different ways to describe. There's actually an infinite number of ways to describe this past, this transaction we've been having with the government. And which way we describe it will put different amount, amounts of wealth on the books. If we say that I borrowed money from you when you're young, I'm the Uncle Sam again. I borrowed money from you. I'm going to pay you back principal plus interest. You're going to show up at your current age with a lot of wealth. You're going to own government bonds. That'll be counted as wealth. If I say I taxed you when you're young, then I'm going to pay you back the same money in the same time as Social Security benefits. Now you don't have as much wealth. Maybe you have no wealth. So we have to look comprehensively at people's resources and spending capacity. I mean, I just want to make a small observation, which is that I can't actually go to a bank and borrow against the value of my future government transfers, but I could. So your assumption that I'm not cash constrained is important because I could, if I owned a piece of real estate that had the same present value as the implied government transfers, I could borrow and get a second mortgage on that and, and, you know, buy my Ferrari today, but I can't do that with my social security uh, uh, benefits that are, properly counted as a part of my economic well-being, but are, are not available to me uh, in an unconstrained fashion. Well, let me just say there's, um, theoretically speaking, if you look at, if you actually model the endogeneity of borrowing constraints, this was a, a famous paper by Fumio Hayashi, it turns out that um, if the government changes language in that manner, uh, the credit constraint should also adjust so that you actually are, if the government knows you're going to be getting Social Security benefits, it should be – sorry, the banking system knows you're going to be getting Social Security benefits in the future, they should be willing to lend more. So if we really model the endogeneity of, of where these borrowing constraints are coming from, it should be invariant. So I wrote a paper with Jerry Green. I think it's the best paper I ever wrote. It's called On the, Relative, uh, on the, Fisc- on the General Relativity of Fiscal Language. It's at kotlikoff.net. Anybody can download it this moment. And it, Jerry Green is the senior theorist at Harvard. Yeah. And it shows that for any neoclassical model, uh, all these different numbers are not well-defined. Private wealth, which Piketty wrote a whole book about, not well-defined. Government wealth, which uh, government debt, which uh, 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 other people have written about in many different books. Um, yeah. Uh, so and, what what is well-defined? Yeah, taxes, what? What, what is therefore, therefore... Where's solid ground in this conceptual? Well, I wrote that huge book about with uh, I forget the co-author, 
forget her name, um, huge book on debt and deficits, which also full, I think, numbers that have no fundamental meaning. But yeah, so um, I'm asking we, you, therefore, how ought we to be thinking about this? Well, so the theory in the paper show clearly what you need to look at is spending. Life to, okay, can you tell us spending. what the paper is? I don't think you identified the paper. Okay, it's called uh, on the on the general uh, uh, on the relative. Uh, sorry, on the um, general relativity of fiscal language. On the general. Oh, this is Jerry Green. The paper with Jerry Green. At Kotlikoff.net under our Okay. Okay. Yes. Go on. Okay. So we need to be. So what economics says is, if you look at somebody like Lon Lowry at your current age, what we really need to look at is your capacity to spend, because that's going to capture uh, all your resources, no matter how the government has labeled things uh, or how I've relabeled things, because I'm free to label what happened to you in the past differently from Uncle Sam. Language is not sacrosanct. So we look at uh, your capacity to spend depends on all your resources under, under any labeling convention what you can spend is going to end up being the same number. Whether we say that you've got social security wealth or we say, no, it's not social security wealth, it's private wealth or healthcare wealth, your, your capacity to spend. So that's what we need to measure is not just is your uh, lifetime spending. And we should look at inequality and remaining lifetime spending. So, so, so back to, let me just kind of complete the circle here. Saez and Zuckman um, uh, wrote this paper uh, and I think a book saying that the poor and the rich are being in middle class are all being taxed at the same rate. That's not well defined because they're focusing on the gross tax rate. The gross tax rate is a language concept. It's a linguistic measure. It's not an economic measure. The net tax rate if you look at 40-year-olds, i just tell you what the net tax rate is for the top 1%. If you look at um, the present value of their uh, net taxes as a share of the present value of their resources, it's 34.5%. For the poor, for the lowest quintile, for the poorest 20% of 40-year-olds, we're talking about a negative tax rate of 47%. So we're going from 47% negative for the lowest 20%, poorest 20%, to positive 35% for the top 1%. That's progressive. That's highly progressive. Okay, now, can you hold on a minute? Can you hold on? Because yeah. the numbers are flying fast and furious. And I want to summarize, as I understand, for the sake of the audience. So the first point is that if somebody tells you the top 1% of wealth holders are own 37% or 42% or whatever number of the wealth, which is the kind of statistic you hear thrown around all the time. You should not take them seriously. That's the wrong way to try to think about inequality. Um, Also the wrong way to think about the inequality or the nature of the distribution of tax burden. The right way to think about it is not what percentage of something like uh, wealth, and you have to define what the assets are, is owned by the top 1%. But what percentage of the available consumption is going to be consumed by the top 1%? And I got the answer for that. Okay. I just want to make sure we got the, that's the right, that's the right concept. And you're saying that taking the numbers from uh, Saez and Zuckman's study, where they look at the poor and then they look at the wealthy and they see that the poor are having a a tax rate, a net tax rate, I'm sorry, a gross tax rate of, and then you gave a number, 34% or something like that. I forget what their number is, but it doesn't really matter because it's not well-defined. It's a stupid number. Whatever they came up with. When you look at the net effective burden of the government on these people, you get that they are actually paying a negative tax rate. That is to say that they're getting more than they're paying in out of the government. Negative 46.6%. The top 1% are 34.5%. It's right on uh, kotlikoff.net is a paper with Alan Auerbach. It's called U.S. Inequality and Fiscal Progressivity. Anybody can download it right now. Also, the um, Wall Street Journal okay. column. Is so that's two, that's two papers that Kotlikoff got in a theoretical paper about how uh, the real economy is invariant to labels. And now this uh, numbers-driven paper about uh, the measurement of the effective tax rates. Oh, yeah. But let me now turn to what you just raised, uh, Glenn, which is, 
what share of uh, the top one, let's again look at 40 to 49 year olds. They have, it turns out, 34.1% of the total wealth. The top uh, 1%. Just, the top 1% of them. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's the kind of number that uh, Piketty and Saez and Zipran would focus on, measured wealth, and that's 34.1%. Now, if you look at their share of, of spending, the top 1% among 40-year-olds, you look at all this, the lifetime spending that 40-year-olds will do, uh, and you asked what share of that do the top 1% get to do, it's not 34.1%, it's only 14.5%. So spending is much more equally distributed than is wealth. And if you those look still at the bottom, very, those still very unequal. One one percent of the population doing one seventh of the spending, and but it's not uh, one third of the spending; it's one seventh of the spending. Exactly, and uh, the lowest twenty percent they own essentially no wealth. It's uh, they're at point six percent share of of wealth as conventionally measured, but their spending is seven point three percent of the cohort spending. So it's not the twenty. You know, it should be twenty percent for. If they have 20% uh, 20% of the households, they should, if we're we're talking about complete equality, get to do 20% of the spending. It's only 7.3%, but that's a hell of a lot higher than 0.6%. So we have to look at the right numbers uh, to have an intelligent discussion of how much inequality is there, how progressive is the fiscal system, how do we want to change the fiscal system? Can I just note that this would apply as well when you com- made um, comparisons of men to women, when you made comparisons of blacks to whites, you when you ask uh, what percentage of the wealth do the different groups have, you would uh, be making a mistake if you left it at that. You should really be asking what percentage of the spending is available to these people, not what percentage yeah. of the wealth. Am I correct in saying that? Absolutely right. And And the way... You know, this calculation is not easy to get to. First of all, we use the survey of consumer finance data, which is a Federal Reserve survey of about 6,000 households. This is from 2016. So you have to get that up and running. You but use I, it to do what? So Tell us a little we, bit about how you actually have to make the calculation. Yes. So I have a, a personal financial planning software company, and we have a commercial tool called Maxify.com, M-A-X-I-F-I. And what you do is you can give, you can buy the program. It's like 99 bucks. You can put in your, your data. It will figure out, uh, you don't tell it how much you'd like to spend in retirement. It will figure out what you can spend on a smooth basis every year, subject to your not going to debt. So it's going to honor your borrowing, your cash flow constraints. And it's also going to figure out your taxes. So what we did is we took this commercial program. Uh, and working with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, we uh, added all the fiscal, all the uh, benefit programs that were not in our commercial program, like supplemental security income, like Obamacare, like food stamps, like uh, uh, child uh, uh, child care support, like energy assistance, like housing assistance. So we included all these things. And, uh, including the corporate income tax, the estate and gift, the estate tax. And we worked on this for about seven years, to tell you the truth, getting this wow. before we started working with the Fed. And then after we started working with the Fed. And these are results that have, um, you know, when you talk about a team of engineers, you can get a lot done. But when you're dealing with all these different programs, many of which are state specific, each state has its own earned income tax credit. Each state, each county has its own Obamacare system, to tell you the truth. So it's just wild. The degree of complexity is un- unbelievable. And uh, anyway, we put all this together and said, okay, let's run basically uh, all, all the households from the survey consumer finances and use the population weights that they provide to properly understand what the uh, uh, you know, when I say that the top 1% of 40-year-olds are consuming 14%, I'm taking into account their weight in the pop. You know, the survey doesn't obviously collect data from all 14, you know, uh, all 1% of the, the top 1% of, of American households. It doesn't. 
survey all of them, but it provides weights that we use. And we also have to go through a big benchmarking process to make sure that the uh, that people are not systematically over or underreporting certain things, like how much uh, uh, they're earning, for example. So, so it is a big project. I can understand why uh, other people will, would produce numbers that um, uh, that are easy to produce, and maybe hope that nobody's going to catch them on it. Because I, I see a lot of, of bad economics being guided by the ease of producing the bad economics. When I talked to you the last time on the Glenn Show about uh, climate uh, change and the optimal carbon tax, yeah. I talked about the wrong methodology being used, one that's really religiously based in many ways. It's not really economics methodology. And I said it's, it was used, I think chosen, because it was easy to use. It was, it's a simple model that can be easily calculated. And I, I described this as looking under the light, the light pole. Right. Uh, now, people need to understand when you say religiously based, you don't mean that it was uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints or it was uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you mean that people have made assumptions that are unjustifiable on any objective or scientific basis and that are driving their results. And they embrace those assumptions, quote, religiously, close quote. Well, right? I, I would say that they're kind of confusing the economics and the religion and uh, they're conflating the two, and as a result, uh, they uh, uh, it's hard to know what they've found. But the religion mm-hmm. is not theology. The, the religion is uh, the adoption of a, a very particular way of weighting the welfare of uh, successive generations. Yeah, yeah, the welfare, how I wel- weight uh, welfare of future generations versus current generations. So one economist like Bill Nordhaus just got the Nobel Prize yeah. a couple years ago. Uh, he has his weighting scheme, uh, Nick Stern, uh, Sir Nicholas Stern. Yes, um, sir. We did this. This was exactly the subject of our last conversation. Exactly. <clears throat> but you're but you're saying that sometimes it's doing it right is hard, and so people just adopt a uh, a, a non rigorous framework because that's the easiest path, the path of least resistance. Right, and think and uh, believe they can get by with it. And then people will say, this is okay. This is like good enough for government work. We can do this in economics uh, for other countries. This is the right standard. They did it so we can do it, right? And, and in, the case, in the case of... Okay, uh, you know, Sire's got the Clark Medal, right? Yes, he, he did. From the top economist under 40, right? And this yeah, very, he sure did. He did, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't make him perfect. It doesn't make him beyond criticism. I, I, I was just going to note that. No, no, and he is, you know, he's a brilliant economist. Yes. He deserves being a Clark, Clark Medal Good. many times over. No no question. And he's the sweetest guy in the world. I love, you know, Emmanuel Slice. This is just not good work. This is not his good work. Okay. Okay. I, I just wanted to circle back a little bit to underscore that when you say it's difficult, not easy, and people might take the path of least resistance. The thing that's difficult is uh, calculating or estimating the net uh, uh, fiscal footprint of the government on the life of a particular cohort of individuals, because you have to know what their future taxes and transfers are going to be. And that depends upon an arcane set of rules that have to then be quantified uh, and estimated. And, and, and that, that took you to the survey of consumer finance, amongst other places. Uh, but not everybody wants to go there. Yeah, it's, you know, the software that we use has got, I'll just be a little bit uh, nerdy here. It's got three dynamic programs that are talking to each other, iterating to, to, a, to a perfectly precise answer for each household when it does the calculations. That, we got a patent for the coming up with that methodology and then uh, actually programming something like Obamacare diff- differently for all the different state, all the state income taxes. Uh, earning tax credit. This is years of work. The Social Security system has is much more complicated than the federal income tax in total. Uh, we're talking about seven reams of computer software code, lines of code. If you printed it out, these seven reams of paper. Uh, that's our underlying program here. And unfortunately, it takes a very long time. We're happy to partner with 
uh, Emmanuel and uh, and his co-author uh, Zuckman to uh, to uh, uh, to work on to help them get the right answer, but uh, and let other people use our tool. It's uh, but it does take a long time. This stuff is not easy. We, I started 26 years ago. I founded the company in '93. So I've been working on this for 26 years, a quarter of a century. Okay, so let me just, because I think there's a political significance to whether or not the top 1% of wealth holders are consuming uh, 34% or 37% of uh, of uh, economic, uh, or, or whether or not they're consuming 14, you know, okay, that, that, that's a, that, that really matters. And whether or not the bottom 20% basically have a fraction of a percentage of what's going on or whether or not they've got, you know, seven or eight or 9% of what's going on, which is still not 20, but it's, it's not as bad as what I I think that matters. Um, And when I listen to the rhetoric about inequality and we've talked about uh, candidate Elizabeth Warren here a little bit, um, I hear large policy positions buttressed, uh, by these kinds of uh, uh, religious or uh, non-economic uh, rhetorical uh, framings. For example, I hear uh, large corporations and billionaires as being the boogeymen because they control everything. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. That is what you think about uh, the, um, the tone of um, progressive, of self-consciously progressive, uh, you, you mentioned Piketty. The book was uh, Sensation Capital in 21st Century. Uh, the book was in part a sensation precisely because it it, it came along at the time of uh, Occupy Wall Street, and there was a lot of concern about the outsized uh, influence and in democratic politics of wealthy people and so on. So a wealth tax, Larry, uh, this is your wheelhouse, man. Uh, uh can that be justified in the face of what it is that you know doing uh, accurate calculations of the extent of uh, inequality and so forth? Uh, how would it work and so on? What do you think? Yeah, let me. Okay, so let me just say in general, I'm, you know, I guess as an American, extremely concerned about inequality. As an economist, I see that inequality, and you know, we look around the world, look at all what's going on in Chile right now with the protests, uh, inequality. Uh, uh, can lead to uh, a huge social disruption and destroy the economy ultimately through time. So we have to think about and measure inequality and, and let politicians make the decision about how to deal with it. So if you look today, you probably go to New York City today and go to uh, Trump Tower on Fifth, a- Fifth Avenue and whatever, 59th Street, and you look at that building and you see uh, you probably find somebody homeless sitting next to it unless – the Secret Service has shooed them away. Yeah. And right there, you know, this country, even with the rich consuming collectively only 14% of the spending, doing 14% of the spending, we have massive inequality. So I think uh, the people that are worried about inequality, including Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, in such a strong manner, uh, are justified uh, with that concern. And we have something like uh, 80, a quarter of the population either uninsured or underinsured for healthcare. That's also a form of inequality that needs to be addressed. So I've been focusing on how to, how to deal with inequality on a, uh, certainly came up with a health reform proposal. I think we might have discussed it together already. Uh, yeah. Here ago. Social Security is going broke. That's going to differentially hurt the poor. How can we save that system and not just maintain this mess that we've got for 75 years and just let it continue? I think we need to retire the old system and start a new one. But when it comes to tax reform, we have to, I think, get the rich to pay their fair share of taxes. Now, I don't like the wealth tax. I'll give you an alternative in a second. But let me explain to you how the rich today can get by with paying zero taxes, absolutely zero and it's really simple, and this may be, this is probably why President Trump is not revealing his tax return, because he's probably paid absolutely nothing for years. And uh, let's suppose, Glenn, that you had a billion dollars, and you don't, and you had it all in stock. Maybe it's just the S&P and index, 
and you don't want to pay any taxes this year, what would you do? Well, you go to your local uh, Morgan, uh, J.P. Morgan, and you say, hey, I'm Glenn Lowry. I'm the billionaire, Glenn Lowry. I'd like to uh, to borrow against uh, borrow some money so I can have a lavish lifestyle. I'd like to spend uh, $5 million this year or $10 million. I can't spend a billion. I want to spend $10 million. Uh, Pay my Learjet, have the pay for the yacht, run all the yacht, whatever. Want to buy the new yacht? And um, can I borrow ten billion? I'm going to pledge my stock as collateral. And they say sure. And by the way, since you've got so much, since you're so safe, you've got so much money relative to what you're borrowing, we're going to lend it to you at a very, very low rate. Just say great, because if you don't, I'm going to go to to uh, Morgan Stanley yeah. down the street and get a better, right. better rate for you. So give me the best rate. So they give you a very low rate. Meanwhile, your stocks are appreciating and you're not realizing the capital gains. So you never, uh, if you have some, some of these stocks don't appreciate, you sell the losers uh, and then realize them winners so that the net capital gain liability is zero. So you pay no taxes there. Now you're consuming, you're paying no taxes whatsoever this year. We move into the next year, you borrow some more. You have even more money in the stock market. This continues until you die. When you die, you leave your money to your kids, your, all your stocks to your kids, and some of it they're going to have to probably sell, uh, might have to pay some capital gains to pay off the, the borrowing. But uh, they're going to be able to get this stock on an uh, unappreciated basis. It's called a step-up in basis. So all the capital gains that you've accrued right up to the point that you died are never going to be taxed. That's just wiped away. That is totally unfair. Having somebody, the rich billionaire, Glenn Lowry, basically paying no taxes over your entire life. Does that device that, have a name? Uh, that, I don't know, but I heard this uh, uh, straight firsthand from a very rich uh, billionaire who was about 35 years old. I'm sitting there talking to him about tax reform. And he starts to over breakfast. Lovely guy, actually. Uh, but he starts to kind of smile. And he said, I have to interrupt you. I said, why? He said, you don't understand something. I said, okay, what don't I understand? What don't I understand? He said, rich people like us, we don't pay taxes. And then I said, is this what happens? You know, I, I went through the, the borrowing. He said, yeah. exactly. That's exactly what we're doing. And none of us pay taxes. So what we see reported as taxes is almost voluntary by the rich. Uh, and so Zuckman and, and Saez are fundamentally on to the right thing, the right concern, but they're not coming at the right answer. A wealth tax that, in effect, within a short period of time, makes those billionaires uh, millionaires, uh, confiscates their wealth, I don't think it's the right answer because – if you have wealthy people who don't consume their money, take Warren Buffett. He lives in a very modest house. You can go visit that in, uh, I think it's, a, where does he live? Nebraska? I forget. Uh, I think it is Nebraska. Yeah, I think it's Nebraska. Des Moines. Des Moines, Des Moines, Des Moines is Des Moines. Iowa. I think it's. Uh, Iowa. It's not, it's not Des Moines. It's Jesus. No. What is it? Uh, yeah. Anyway. Omaha. Omaha, Nebraska. It's, it's Omaha, okay, Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah, right. Omaha. He's got a very he's got a smaller house than I grew up in, and I grew up up in a you know kind of middle class house. Yeah, in Omaha, he doesn't spend his money. He doesn't consume a whole lot. He uses it for charities, giving away most of it or a good chunk of it to the Gates Foundation. He also so, pays a lower tax rate than a secretary. Yeah, well, but he says that's, that, not, he, that's calculating the gross taxes, not the net. <laughs> not the net, yeah. So that's the screwed up calculation, too, I'm sure. Yeah. But anyway, what we should do is we should be taxing people's consumption. If Warren Buffett doesn't consume anything, that's a good thing because he's leaving his wealth for the rest of us to work with. It becomes the capital for the country and and for or people outside the country to use to uh add their labor supply and be more productive and therefore earn more wages. That's all positive according to our economic theory. And so what I do is I favor, first of all, taxing inheritance, not wealth or uh, bequest. If, he, if Warren Buffett were to spread the money out, leave it to everybody 
in an equal amount, that would be below the threshold under which my inheritance tax would kick in. You're kicking around $5 million. You inherit more than $5 million, you have to start paying taxes on the excess. But I would also tax consumption uh, in a basic way be a value-added tax around uh, 18%, but also consumption above $100,000. People consume on an annual basis beyond $100,000 a year. They would start facing a uh, progressive tax that would go up to 30%. So it started at 5%, go up to 30% when you consumed a whole lot. This is in a world with no income taxation. Well, yeah, I would actually get rid of the um, federal income tax and the corporate income tax and just tax worldwide consumption. But I'd also tax in part of that consumption calculation would be the imputed rent, the consumption services on the Trump hotel, on Trump's residence in his hotel, on his yacht. Trump has an enormous yacht. He's got airplanes. Got it. All these things that are providing consumption services, and some of it's business versus personal. We'd have to have a way to allocate that, but that could be done. And whether he consumes here or abroad, he might go out to a fancy restaurant in Paris. Worldwide consumption would be taxed at a progressive rate, and that's what you really want to do. And somebody who's uh, paying for his consumption out of his wealth he'll end up being taxed on it, on his wealth in effect. But somebody who's taking his wealth and not consuming it is doing a good thing for society. So I wrote uh, a a column that's at kotlikoff.net under columns. It's called to tax the wealth, to soak the wealth, the wealthy tax their consumption progressively. Will be a progressive consumption tax? So it's uh, the title has uh, to soak the rich, tax their consumption. And that's what I think we should be doing, not advocating a a, a cockamamie uh, wealth tax, which is going to lead wealthy people, I think, to leave the country and and, uh, won't collect, I think, in the end, the revenue that we need from the calculations I've made. Well, that's what's happened uh, in the uh, Nordic countries and uh, France and uh, whatnot. Is that not in the... uh, in the uh, wake of uh, wealth taxation, a lot of uh, wealth has gone offshore. Yeah, I, I know uh, wealthy Frenchmen and women who have actually just picked up and left to the U.S. or other countries because of the wealth tax. Now, Macron, to his credit, has reduced it, but he should be taxing um, consumption on a progressive basis. Uh, and uh, he should be taxing carbon. He should have a gas tax, but he should also... The, uh, as I discussed with you last time, cutting other taxes so the poor end up better off on balance, even though they have to pay more for uh, filling up their tank, and uh, leave the bill for future generations to pay. So we can be much more, um, uh, let's say, creative and appropriate when it comes to our fiscal policy. We can have carbon taxation. So I'm calling for a carbon tax and an inheritance tax two different types of uh, consumption tax, a value-added tax, and a progressive uh, um, progressive consumption tax, and also a progressive payroll tax where the first $40,000 is not subject to taxation and there's no ceiling. That was my tax platform when I ran for president. Yeah. You recall that I ran as a writing candidate last time. I do recall Trump. that. So what do you think of Andrew Yang, uh, who is uh, – trying to do so universal basic income and such and, and trying to run as a, as a smart, uh, you know, quantitatively sophisticated observer of American policy. Well, okay. So, you know, I think Yang uh, tries to sound uh, like he's thought these things out, but I don't think he has too far. I don't think he's gone too far in his thinking because he's not talking about social security's uh, $43 trillion unfunded liability as reported in the trustees report. He's not talking about the incredibly high marginal taxes that people face. Poor people, we're locking poor people into poverty with all these stupid uh, welfare programs that, uh, you know, they'll leave half the people above the 50% marginal tax bracket. That's another paper that's going to be coming out. That'll be another Glenn show 
we'll, uh, we'll be talking Basically about. Basically, because they're means tested, the benefits that we provide them, and they are disqualified from receiving transfers when their income increases. So effectively, their income is being taxed at a high rate. At the margin, yeah. I earn more money. I try and increase my salary by 20%. I could end up worse off. A lot of people are in above 100% marginal tax bracket. A lot of people are in an 80% bracket. And it's specifically or especially for the poor, not specifically, but people in the first two quintiles, the lowest, the bottom 40%, they're really in very high marginal tax brackets, um, even though their average tax rate, net tax rate is negative. Yeah, I was going to make that point because the two parts of our conversation now join together. You've been talking about average tax rates before and how they vary with the economic position. But in terms of marginal tax rates, the poor really are paying a very high proportion of the incremental earnings, uh, paying it in effect because their net position uh, doesn't improve. Right. So they're actually locked into poverty. So we've come up with a policy to lock the poor into poverty. So giving everybody a thousand bucks. Uh, when the government might actually take away all that taxable income and take away more than a thousand bucks is just flat out stupid. It shows you don't really understand. I don't want to call Mr. Yang stupid. He's not stupid. He's a brilliant. No, man. he's not. And he's going to he, say, he, he, uh, I, I don't intend to leave the rest of the, uh, uh, the transfer system undisturbed. For example, my, uh, my Democrat is not going to disqualify people from the receipt of, uh, of uh, Medicaid or things like that. Isn't he going to say that? Or yeah, what is he, he saying? I actually haven't read, not, his, read his plan. Well, the fact that he's not saying, uh, he should be saying that it's not taxable or not going to affect your benefits. The fact that he's not saying means that it seems signals to me that he doesn't understand the fiscal system. You can't run for president, whether you're Warren or Yang or uh, Biden, if you don't understand what we've got. And most of these people don't understand what we've got. And they go for Bloomberg and they go for um, yeah, uh, all these kind of things. So, so yeah, I want just to ask you just very briefly, what do you think about the argument that the economy is doing very well and that should be uh, uh, something to Trump's credit as much as we might otherwise dislike him? Uh, do you think that uh, the administration deserves any credit for uh, conduct of economic I policy? Think, tell you the truth, I don't think administrations deserve, they don't change policy that much to deserve credit for uh for economic growth. It has to do with demographics to a large extent. It has to do with, uh, with uh, uh, you know, if you think about the stock market, why is it booming so much? A lot yeah. 40% of the stock market's invested abroad. So U.S. companies are heavily invested. If, uh, if Bangladesh is growing and a U.S. company is profiting from that, the stock market's going to go up. We're going to think that's great news about the U.S. economy. It's really great news about the Bangladesh economy. Uh, so, but if you look at wages in the U.S., they haven't been growing dramatically. The, the median wage uh, is not going up in real terms after inflation. Uh, it hasn't gone up 3% since Trump took office. Maybe it's gone up 1.5% over the last yeah, year. Yeah, my impression is that the trend in real wages had uh, shown a slight uptick in the last couple of years relative to having been flat or even mildly declining over the pre- preceding 20 yeah, years. This is not success. You know, if a small fraction of people are getting uh, the productivity increase in the country, if the GDP is growing a lot and it's basically going to a small fraction of people, uh, that's not economic success broadly defined. So people should be discussing, uh, uh, you know, it's one thing to have – a job, it's another thing to have a good job, a good paying job, a secure yeah. job. It's gonna last for you for your lifetime. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't I don't see that we have a healthy economy. I see where uh, you know, we could have the kinds of protests you see in Chile uh, taking place in the in in the US from one day to the next. It's it's uh, not all that much different. When you have so many people without health insurance, so many people living close to the margin, so many people haven't had a real wage increase, so many people with two or three jobs. <laughs> well, my, my, you know, you know, Bridge and my wife, we went to, um, to Whole Foods a few months ago. We met a coworker of her who had actually hired her. She was working in personnel. 
She'd hired Bridget, before, you know, a year or so, year and a half ago or so before Bridget retired. Yeah. And the coworker is sitting there uh, bagging groceries at Amazon. Uh, sorry, it, it, well, it is Amazon. It's Whole Foods, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and, and Bridget said, well, uh, how come you, you know, you're still working at, at uh, Wafer, right? And she said, oh, yeah, this is uh, one of my three jobs. Oh, so wow. she has two other jobs to keep to pay the bills, even though she's working for one of the fastest, biggest companies, high-tech companies in the country. And this is Wayfair. This is the equivalent of Amazon in the world of furniture. Yeah, I know Wayfair. Online, order your sofa. They'll send it to you. I know them all too well. I'm sorry to have to report. <laughs> yeah, we, we've been buying furniture. Like, oh, but, oh, Larry, we bought a house. Um, Luan and I have... Yeah. Acquired and so speaking of Wayfair, we will be visiting them soon. <laughs> oh, that's that's good. I, I'm glad it went through. You mentioned it. You sent me some pics, early pics, but it wasn't. Oh yeah, good. that's right. That's great. That's so terrific. we can't wait to have you guys over so you can see our new digs. That'll be next year, early next year. Okay, I'm, I'm coming with my yeah. swimsuit. I uh, that was- <laughs> oh yeah, we. <laughs> Not in January, though. <laughs> we may fill that pool in. I don't know. We're going to a home inspection today, in fact, and that's going to be one of my big issues. So knowing about the condition of that pool and thinking through the maintenance problems associated with it, because it's about consumption, as you point out, Larry. It's <laughs> also a risk. There's also the grandchildren. You know, the climate don't only permits an outdoor pool to be used to you know, for a few months a year, heating it is going to cost a fortune if you try to keep that water mm-hmm. warm enough to tolerate uh, in the off season. So I don't know. And you got to keep a, keep an eye out on the little grandkids. So you got to have that fence around it when the kids are around. That's because a fair point. And we lost a friend's, a friend's child was killed that way. So oh, that's a, tragic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's terrible. All right, Larry, why don't we call it uh, a day here? I appreciate your time. Uh, we've been talking through the issue of uh, the progressivity of the American fiscal system properly understood. Uh, Larry Kotlikoff, Boston University economics uh, professor, my friend. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Larry. Anytime, Glenn. 